0: Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I am currently a sophomore at UCLA. Was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden
1: and co host this podcast. And I am Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst, and also the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pins are a Canadian flag and a Canadian maple leaf, both in honor of our guest today, Ali Velshi.
0: Listeners and viewers of the show know that in addition to keeping you informed on the latest that's going on in politics, one of the things we love doing is showing you a different side of those you see on television or shape policy and law. We are especially grateful today to have Ali Velshi, who has had an extensive and impressive career in TV and now anchors MSNBC's eponymous show, Velshi.
1: And I've been honored to be on many of Ali Velsi's shows, and I know him as being a very charming and very, very smart person. So it's a pleasure to welcome him to the show. Those of you who don't know him so well, he was born in Nairobi, raised and began his career in Canada, moved to the U.S. where he was uh, first with CNN as a chief business correspondent and anchor of CNN's Your Money as well as co-host of an international CNN Business Week show. And then in 2013, he joined Al Jazeera America and hosted his own show there. Uh, when they went out of business in America, he joined, we're lucky to say, MSNBC, where he has had many roles. He co-hosted um, a show, Velshi Rule with Stephanie Rule, and had an MSNBC live show msnbc live with ali and he's now hosting a two-hour weekend show called velshi so i'm thrilled to welcome ali velshi to IGen politics today and i know that you are going to enjoy getting to know him as much as uh, victor and i have so thank you ali for joining us today
2: uh jill it's an amazing honor and it's it's great to have the tables turned a little bit where <laughs> where you're introducing me um but it's always a pleasure to talk to you my friend
1: It's actually quite intimidating to have the tables turned. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, It's easier for me with you asking the questions, but I'm going to turn it over for the first question to Victor.
0: Sure. So you have such a fascinating background. You, have our, uh, you are of uh, Gujarati Indian descent. Your grandfather was a friend of Gandhi. Your parents lived in South Africa where they owned a bakery, but left because apartheid was too oppressive. Um, they then moved to Nairobi, Kenya, when we were, where you were born, and then moved to Canada when you were about three years old. So you were raised in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I, I'm wondering, how did your family decide to move to Canada?
2: Well... Um so my my grandfather was actually Gandhi's youngest student on his um, mm. on his farm, and it was really a commune that they grew up on and The whole point of that exercise growing up on that farm was to grow up to be prepared to fight injustice and take the punishments that came with it. So they had no meat, they had no hot water, they had no blankets to sleep on. Um and actually they were given two blankets, one that you could lay underneath you and one that you could put over you, but you slept on the floor. And so the point is my my grandfather and then my my family grew up fighting apartheid. Uh, And and in many cases, uh, certain members of my family went to jail because of it. Uh, Others got harassed in their business. So ultimately, in around the mid-50s, my family realized, this is, you know, the 1950s, they they realized they needed to get out of there. There was no future for them. Um, The government was on to the fact that they were troublemakers and anti-apartheid activists. Um, So they, they, they went to Kenya. But, you know, at that time, these changes were occurring all over the world, so they got sort of caught between and betwixt um, in Kenya, where they were also newcomers. I was born there, um, and it's it's my home, but um, it it wasn't easy for them to to make a life there. And they had always had an eye on Canada, and toward the end of the nineteen sixties. Canada, uh, the, the Canadian government under the then Prime Minister Lester Pearson and his deputy, who was Pierre Trudeau, the father of the current Prime Minister, they looked at Canada and they said, this country's not going to amount to anything. We don't have enough children. The population growth is not big enough. The only way Canada will become a country that punches above its weight is to increase its population. And in 1968, the only way to increase your population was to open your doors to immigrants and refugees. So Canada really said to everybody all over the world, they loved freedom fighters. They loved activists like my family. uh, They loved all sorts of immigrants. Right about then, Idi Amin was busy uh, shutting a whole bunch of Asians out of Uganda. Perfect. Canada says, come on in. And Canada actually built itself up on that. I grew up in Toronto in the 1970s. It was a provincial little town uh, where everything was closed by 6 p.m. and there was nothing open on a Sunday. And waves and waves of immigration, uh, the most recent having been uh, immigrants from Hong Kong, have changed the face of that city and that country. Canada, everybody my age or older in Canada saw it the old way, sees it the news way, the new way. And every time they see an immigrant, Mm -hmm. we go and kiss them because we understand that they have made this country into what it is. So you can imagine it was a bit surprising when I came to the United States 20 years ago. And there's this weird obsession with immigration in this country that sometimes paints it as negative, it's entirely foreign to me. I I think immigrants are what make a place what what it is. So that's how my family got to Canada. And that's sort of how I ended up thinking about um, Canada and, and subsequently the United States.
0: So obviously, that had a huge impact on your worldview and your values. I'm wondering if your parents ever talked to you about apartheid and how significant those discussions were in shaping your values and worldview.
2: So they did. Uh, They talked to me a lot about it. Uh, But on top of that, the one thing that my parents could not do by virtue of the color of their skin growing up was be participants in politics. So the first thing that happens when we got to Canada is my my parents got involved in politics. They joined the political party. um, And I've told the story a few times. But in in 1981, I was 12 at the time, my father ran for office uh, for the first time. And uh, it was it was uh, election night. I, I was probably his hardest campaign worker. And we had gone home to just freshen up for the, the night, the, what I thought was going to be the victory party. We get in the car at almost 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock is when the polls closed. And the radio broadcast comes on to say that the, the polls are closed uh, too early to tell what the result is, except in one constituency, which happened to be the one in which my dad was running. And they are able to declare that the, the incumbent had been reelected. 30 seconds after 8 o'clock, not a vote had been counted, and they were able to declare that we had lost that election. So I was devastated. Just my dad and me in the car, and I said to him, I said, I can't believe we lost. And he said, of course we lost. I said, what do you mean, of course we lost? He said, we were never going to win. I said, well, why did you run if we were never going to win? And he said, because I could. Because... I can actually run. I can put my ideas forward and people can make a choice as to whether they would like to support my ideas or the ideas of my opponent. And no one goes to jail as a result of it. To him, that was victory. He he won by running. And and I, you know, it's, it's funny because I think it's such a great story that, that talks about how I'm influenced by democracy. And often when I've told the story in Canada, somebody reminds me that I never tell the end of the story. And that is that he ran again, and he won, and he became the first South Asian anywhere in Canada elected to that level of, of office. But to me, the losing in 1981 influenced my view of democracy more than his actual winning uh, and becoming a member of, uh, of the parliament.
1: That's an amazing story and obviously has had impact on you. Uh, you went on to study in Canada at Queen's University University and majored in religious studies. So what were your career plans when you were doing that?
2: Uh, Well, this is another interesting story. My career plans, there was only one other member of my family who had ever attended Queens University. um, And he was one of the first people in my family, my mother's brother, to have arrived in Canada. My family arrived in Canada sort of over a several year period in the 1970s. And so he was iconic to me, he was a lawyer. And so the thing I wanted to become was a lawyer. And he went to school at Queen's, so I wanted to go to Queen's and become a lawyer. And in my first week there, I met up with a, an old friend, somebody I'd known who was a few years ahead of me. And she was actually um, about to graduate and, and go on to law school, and she's become a very senior prosecutor in Canada. But she had said to me, well, you know what? The, the way you get into law school here is you, you do well in your undergraduate. And um, if, if the point is to do well in your undergraduate, you should really study something you want to study. And she said the thing about Queen's University is that it paired up with a, a theological college like 100 years ago or more. And it has a degree in religion, but it's mostly for people who are going into it as a calling. You can take it as a as an intellectual pursuit, but there aren't enough courses to fill uh, your major. So you end up having to fill it with courses that the department had approved in English in history uh, in other departments, so it became the most liberal arts education that I could actually get at a liberal arts university, and that's why I did it. I studied religion because it would give me the closest thing to a liberal arts education or the broadest education I could get Uh at a law school. On the way, I I got derailed and became a journalist, but the goal was to become a lawyer like my uncle and uh, be the second one in the family, and uh, and that's why I did it. But it was a lawyer from Queens who actually. Set me off on a different route, and and getting so engaged in in liberal arts sort of led to journalism. It it, it sort of took me down this road to say, hey, I want to I want to study this. I want to study what this thing is that we live in, and what these freedoms are that we celebrate. And hence, I became a journalist.
1: Interesting, and of course, actually, the same thing happened to me. I ended up graduating in journalism uh, because my first choice of career path was one that required that I cut up a cadaver in my second year. Ah. And I couldn't do that, so I had to find <laughs> a different career. Um, and never expected to be a lawyer, but expected to be a journalist. Anyway, um, you didn't... This is get how the your, universe
2: evens itself out, I guess.
1: I guess. <laughs> but even still, while you were in this liberal arts program studying religion, you were obviously involved in politics because you made news while you were in college uh, by protesting against Prince- Preston Manning and Canada's Reform Party. Um, Now, I don't know enough about Canadian politics to know who Preston Manning is or what what the issue was. So what got you so revved up that you made news?
2: Well, it was the first foray into what would become a much bigger deal in the United States, and that was populist politics. populist sort of, uh, right of center politics. Mm-hmm. I, I hasten to, uh, to I don't use right wing as much because the most right wing Canadians don't tend to compare to the most right wing Americans, but it was by our standards, uh, fairly right wing. Um, and I actually held positions. Uh, I had been on the student government. I was the speaker of the, the sort of the student parliament at the time. And, uh, I, I've always been a huge fan of protest. Right, my my family's history is based on on protest. This country's founding is based on protest. Um, so I, I'm a, a a big fan of of being out there and and speaking your mind. However, it is that that works. It can be in the form of an actual protest. It can be in the form of running for office. It can be in the form of debate on TV. But at the time, uh, what I'd chosen to do was ask a question, and and the. They knew who I was, so they were deliberately not uh, not seeking me out to answer that question. And so I uh, caused a bit of a disruption, and was my my roommate and I were thrown out uh, by security, and uh, and it made it onto the the news and the front page of the the local newspapers. But I will say it was an issue. I wasn't a protester because I come from people of protest, but I have since learned the importance and value of. Of protest, And by the way, the whole First Amendment thing in the United States, it's much more robust than what the rest of the developed world has. Most, of, most countries have freedom of speech, most developed countries have freedom of speech, but not as, as, as developed and entrenched and, and as the First Amendment is. And I'm a big, big, big believer in what America has, uh, in whether or not people ha- share my politics, the idea that you have this tool, and if you don't use it, it will go away. Uh, and we are we watch that sometimes we watch rights being taken away from people. So I'm proud to say that I I've 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 been at this protest thing for a long time and having covered all of the protests last year um, and I've I've done commentaries on them and i have I've spoken about it. I, I, I like to remind people, this is not new to me. I, I, I haven't just developed my views on protest uh, because of the year of fire we had in 2021. This started in my family in the late 1800s, went through the 1900s uh, into my time in, in Canada and is still with me now.
1: And you were involved not just in Canada, because right after you graduated, you got a fellowship in the U.S. Congress. You worked for, I think, Lee Hamilton, and um, but you did end up returning to Canada and becoming a reporter. So talk a little bit about how you got interested in journalism and why you returned back to Canada.
2: Well, the, the fellowship, it was a congressional fellowship, and it was, I, I mean, I love Lee Hamilton. I, I think everybody who knows Lee Hamilton yeah. uh, loves this man. Uh-huh. He, um, I think back in the day, you, he was referred to as a, maybe a conservative Democrat or something like that. He was a moderate. He yeah. was a um, a guy who hadn't made up all his decisions on all the issues, which you had the liberty of being able to do in those days um, yes. because political parties were a little more uh, objectively normal than they than they are today. Uh, but I, I learned from him. We would go... Uh, and, and have lunch together at Congress and I I learned uh, as a proud Canadian I learned about this amazing political system that America had and I fell in love with it um, but I was Canadian and, and my career was probably going to be in Canada so uh, I ended up returning home to uh, to do other jobs and and work my way up the ladder uh, and and did so until uh, until 2001 when when I got hired by CNN and when when that did happen I have to say I was well ensconced in Toronto I had a great life there it's where I grew up um, and I, I wasn't looking to move and and this job offer came up and I kind of I kind of had no choice but to take it it wouldn't have made sense not to take it but there's so many people who are dying to do that to get to New York and 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 take this big job and here I I, I liked it but I liked what I was doing so I, didn't, I wouldn't say I went I, I came here grudgingly I, I certainly embraced the opportunity and I loved it But I, I've never left Canada behind. I never left it properly. Um, And so, so I live these two lives. I I am a proud American and I'm really proud of what this country is. And I'm also a proud Canadian.
1: So you have dual citizenship? I do. Excellent. And um, so, Victor, why don't you take it from 2001?
0: Yeah. So you mentioned your time at CNN and when you moved to the U.S. That was September two thousand one. Um, I'd like to ask if you came here before or after nine eleven, um, and depending on the answer, what was your reaction to nine eleven, and that, did that have any bearing on how you covered stories in
2: America? It, so it's a, it's a really good question. I, I I think I came to interview with CNN in May of two thousand and one, and it took months and months of of negotiations and visas and things like that, and so. Uh, The aim was to start, believe it or not, um, on September the 10th, Monday, September the 10th in New York. And what I did is I had some vacation accumulated. So what I did while the visa was being sorted out is I took about a month and I went to South Africa, where my family, as you know, was from. So I spent uh, about a month there. I arrived in New York on Friday, September the 7th, 2001. And the visa hadn't been sorted out yet. Now, normally, as a Canadian, um, Jill, you probably know this because you live close to, you don't live that far from Canada. You can go back and forth to Canada as an American or as a Canadian with nothing, but it used to be a driver's license. Now you need a passport, but you don't need any visas. But when you're working, you do need a visa. So I actually couldn't stay in America on September 7th. I had to go back to Toronto. And the the immigration person at the border said, this is, it's a small matter. This is going to be sorted out probably on Monday. So Monday, I'm on the phone with with CNN's lawyers. And they said, yeah, it's it's a technicality. This should be done by the end of the day. And it came through on the morning of September 11th. And at this point, uh, I'm now in Toronto. There are no flights. There are there's no trains, there's no buses. Every American has rented every car to get home. And I still don't have my visa. So it's been approved. The visa center was in Vermont at the time that handled Toronto or whatever it was. And what happened is uh, I had worked, as a reporter, I had done work with the, the US consulate in Toronto. So I said, look, CNN really needs me to get to work. Uh, the visa's in Vermont. What do we do about this? There's no planes. You can't vet exit. So they said, uh, we've talked to the guy who runs the border at Niagara Falls. He's on shift till midnight. If you appear before midnight with a faxed copy of your visa, he'll let you in. I'd, I'd sold my car. I'd moved all my stuff. I had my apartment in New York. Everything was set up. So I got on a motorcycle. I had a motorcycle, which I was not planning on taking. It wasn't a kind of motorcycle that you'd drive from Toronto to New York. It was a 750cc motorcycle that, you know, young guys like me back at the time, I, when I was young, would ride. You know, you kind of lean forward into it a little bit. It's not, not like an old guy motorcycle where you sit up. So I get on this motorcycle. I have to stop every hour because I'm just like shaking, and, and, and it's a horrible experience. I, I get past the border. The guy lets me in. Uh, I spend the night in a, in a motel in Niagara Falls and then I drive in the next day uh, to New York on my motorcycle. I drove in on the 13th oh of September. Wow. Um, what a thing. What a thing to drive into Manhattan. Uh, every street corner had either a police officer or an off-duty police officer or a police cadet. They were all brought out of uh, training people didn't even have their full uniforms on. You know, someone would just have a badge or someone would just have their shirt. Um, and, you know, the signs were up everywhere of, of the people who were missing. And as you know, there was a real sense of having emptied the hospitals and being ready to receive people, but there weren't that many people received. And so that was my, my introduction to New York. It was that. I, my apartment was on 34th Street facing south on the eighth floor. I, I looked at that fire burning the entire time. I saw it every night. I, you know, I, CNN was right there at Penn Station, and I lived in a building that actually abutted it. I could steal cable from CNN. We were right next door, so it was my life. It was my work, um, and it it it's it's the indelible experience of the beginning of my career. It, it's it's the date to which I started my career. It's it's how I date my time in the U.S.
0: And it's a moment when there was solidarity here. Um, When you first came to CNN, did you notice any differences between um, American news channels and Canadian news channels? And if so, what differences did you notice?
2: Two, really. Uh, One is, generally speaking, American news channels were better resourced. That's kind of why Canadian journalists, I think, ended up um, being quite popular in the US because we we always did more with less uh, in Canada. The other thing that I found interesting is the degree to which America's so much bigger and more important and more powerful, but the, the way we look at the news can sometimes be more parochial because you don't have to look all around you. In Canada, you always looked around you. In Canada, you're the mouse next to the elephant, right? You always have to worry. Every Canadian knew in great detail what was going on in America. Um, in the first years, people would say to me, what do, what do Americans think about Canadians? And I would say they don't. Um, it's benign. It's not that they. It's not that there's any negative opinion. Canadians were always worried that Americans didn't have a good opinion of them. Americans have been to some Canadian places, and generally, back in those days, that's all they knew. I would say in recent years with things that have been going on, my, my home country has become very popular with Americans uh, because as they've looked to it and said, hey, they, they do do some things uh, perhaps better than we do in the United States. But in Canada, we always had to know all about that. You knew what other countries were doing. And most importantly, you knew what America was doing all the time. What I learned in America is that it's, it was not an imperative to know what else was going on in the world because... Guys are busy. You guys have a lot of states. You've got, you know, the kids in school are learning state capitals. Where do you have time to learn about other things? So there, there was a, a parochialism that I I saw 20 years ago that has sadly grown into the kind of thing that subjects people to disinformation and misinformation today. Um, I, I think what we have learned is we we need to be broader thinkers in America, and we need to be more critical thinkers uh, in America to address the kinds of threats that we're going to face. We're living through one right now, and it's it's an existential threat to democracy. but fundamentally, all of these threats, whether it's about whether you should take a vaccine or who you should vote for, have got to do with being critical consumers of information and I think in a country like America, it becomes harder to do that. Because of how much information is, is, is coming at you just about the stuff uh, that you have to deal with immediately, as opposed to the rest of the world or, or ideas that are, that are bubbling over in other parts of the world.
1: Well, Victor and I could not agree with you more. It's a subject that we frequently talk about on this show, talking about critical thinking skills and how important it is. We also always talk about how do we communicate facts Uh, People who listen to you on MSNBC, who listen to Fox News, live in different bubbles, and they don't have the same facts. And we're always interested, maybe you can even comment on, how can we get people on both sides or in both silos to agree on facts? I grew up in an era where there were only three networks, and they all had the same facts. And so it was easy to have bipartisanship, and now I, I think... What you just said is the most important is that there is an existential threat to democracy, that it could end. And how do we how do we get over that?
2: Yeah, I I think it is existential, right? I think some people say you're blowing that out of proportion. But but I I. I if you read history, you know how many societies there are all sorts of societies that that fell apart very quickly um, as a result of authoritarianism or an absence of facts or misinformation. but I think back to Germany, which in the thirties was was robust um it had intelligentsia, it had academia, it had music, it had science uh it was a multicultural place it was a place to people to which people went um there's it would have been reasonable in the thirties to have said. Nothing's gonna go wrong here. There's some there's a, a bit of crazy stuff happening, but it's not it's not gonna come apart. And then it completely came apart. And I, I I I don't know that Americans register the fragility of the democracy that we've got. But you can't fix it if you're if you're believing entirely different things. And and that's what I worry about. That if you are a good debater, I enjoyed debate in college, it means debating people on the facts. It means that. Jill, you and I might disagree on what, uh, minimum wage should be in this country. Victor, you and I might disagree as to how universal healthcare should be, but those are, those are differences in opinion that are based upon the same facts. Will the outcomes be different in terms of prosperity or in terms of health outcomes if we did X? That's the way discussions should go. Now, not only do we not have most people consuming news from networks as opposed to, to cable and other ventures, um, we've got social media, which you know, is geared toward giving you more of what you want. And, and so people like Roger McNamee, who's written this book called Zucked, and he was an investor in, in, uh, in, in uh, Facebook, says that he thinks that social media might actually be incompatible with democracy. So I I worry about this because I watched social media play a role in uh, what was a nascent sort of independence movement in Iran that never got off the ground, but it was spread by social media. The Arab Spring uh, was on social media. So it's done a lot of good for a lot of people, but it has erased our critical thinking skills from us because where you used to be the one person at the Thanksgiving table who had a wacky idea and then everybody else might try and set you straight or ignore you, now you have a full community of people who do this. And it's dangerous because you it's there's no built-in mechanism on social media to say, you seem to be going down a weird rabbit hole. Let me give you something else to offset this. On one hand, you've got community for people who never had community before, but some of these communities are unhealthy and they're dangerous. So I'm very, very worried, not only about the the threats that we have to social uh, to, to to democracy right now, but the fact that most people probably don't take seriously that there's actually a threat to democracy, because all they think is that the other side is lying. Uh, and we've lost this ability to have a common platform for discussion. I, I work for an industry that has contributed to that. So I take it very personally that I'd like to try and create some solution to that uh, and I don't know what that looks like yet but I try very hard to engage in conversation where some people don't want to have it and I have people complain to me why do you why do you have conversations with these people why do you book them on your show and I I say fairly to them that I totally get that you don't want to have a conversation with people who don't share your political views and that's your privilege It's not my privilege as a journalist. I don't have that privilege to walk away from conversations. We are like firefighters. When a firefighter runs away from the fire, you're all in trouble. When the journalist walks away from the conversation, society's in trouble.
1: So do you have a line? I, I also want to mention that Roger was um, our guest last week. So you uh, might be interested in hearing we had a very lively conversation with him. Um, he's
2: a great thinker on this.
1: He he really really is. It was a very good conversation. Um, uh, we're running out of time, I can see, and we're not even a quarter of the way through the questions we want to ask you. So you're going to have to come back for another, uh, another time. But maybe uh, just talk a little bit more on this particular subject, because it's one that we care so deeply about. And what, what line do you have in terms of when will you not broadcast someone's views?
2: So um, I, have a, um, I, I have a line that, that is about lying, right? I, I understand it's protected mm-hmm. by the Constitution. Um, it's not, not protected by me. Um, if you are knowingly lying about something, um, then, then, then that's not a conversation I'm prepared to yeah. uh, engage with you. And I'm, I'm actually faster than uh, some people in my business to come to that decision about lying. I'm faster to use the term. Um, I grew up in a country where you, you, it was improper to say that. It was certainly improper to say it in Parliament. You couldn't say it. And I thought to myself, you know, that's the problem with lying, when you don't actually call liars out for being liars. Yeah. So that's one line. Um, and, and I do have... I don't care where somebody is on the political spectrum, but you have to be on the political spectrum. You have to actually believe that that democracy is a shared objective and a shared value. You have to believe that while this union may not be perfect, we should be on the road to perfecting it. So So... For those who just, the the big lie is a line for me, right? That's, I'm, I'm not really willing to entertain that because there's no valid reason why someone would fall for these beliefs. I get that they are influenced by the repetition of these beliefs and by Donald Trump saying it all the time, but that's where the critical thinking comes in, right? At some point you've got to say, I might like Donald Trump. I might have liked the idea that he was gonna drain the swamp. I like the idea that he's pugilistic and he and he and he speaks his mind, but he's actually lying about democracy and he's he's destabilizing democracy in the process. So to me, the line is you have to not make excuses for that stuff. You have to not lie about elections. You have to not uh, lie about who won the election. You can lie about who should, you can discuss with me who you think should have won the election. You can discuss with me what you think of Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or any of that stuff. But but the, the facts issue is, is basic for me. To the extent that th- some things are knowable, then if you know them and you, and you, and you don't articulate, articulate them, that's a problem. Same thing with climate. Um, we're not. I'm not having debates with people about whether climate change exists. I will have lots of debates about the best way to manage it and to deal with it and to mitigate it, but not about whether it exists. I'm not having conversations with people about whether or not Joe Biden won the presidential election. So that's those are my lines. Honesty tends to be the, the main one for me.
1: Those seem to be good ones. And before we run out of time, Victor always has his favorite question. So I'm going to let him take the last question.
2: Is it about food, Victor?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do love food. Jill and I do share (laughs) a love for food, but we also share um, a love for trying to Um, join the two generations together. I'm wondering if you have any advice for students. Um, You've had such a fascinating career um, for any college students or or people interested in journalism. What do you have to say to them?
2: Hurry up and join us in the workforce. The only hope we have is students. Uh, All the stuff I talk about, about making people critical thinkers, it's very, very hard to do with mature minds. Um, The the only hope, I think we can fully get it right with, with, with young kids and students. Um, I am a big fan of of critical thinking being a very big part of what we do uh, at colleges and universities. I was, uh, you know, I was I was kicked out of a a protest. I, I think you should have speeches at which you can protest. I don't think we should be silencing um, speakers. You know, obviously there are things that we don't want to be doing because they are contrary to uh, an honest society. But but I, I think that we should be encouraging young people who have these opportunities uh, at, at universities and colleges to engage vigorously in these types of political discussions, but read the things necessary to be critical thinkers, but join us. I, I I don't doubt we can fix this problem as it relates to young people. I'm mostly worried about the rest of us who are actually in charge charge of things. So uh, I'm happiest when I'm on college campuses or when I'm talking to, to new graduates or young people, because I, I feel like they're open to listening to these ideas. People are very hardened these days, Victor, but I, I do think that you have a better chance of, of convincing someone and, and debating someone um, who's younger these days than, than some of us.
0: That is great advice. And Jill and I, we are so grateful to have you on the podcast today.
2: I'd love to join you again. Please let me know when Thank I can uh, be of service Thank you. to
1: you. We definitely will. Thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Victor, I just thought Ali Velshi was a phenomenal guest. He is such a character and such a personality and has one of the most interesting lives and careers of anyone I know. He should be an inspiration to your generation. What do you think?
0: He is definitely an inspiration for our generation. I think there's so many good points that came up during the conversation. One of which was his analogy uh, to journalists being um, like firefighters. I think for anyone out there who's interested in journalism or who wants to go into the journalism career, um, you know, I, I really think back to the Washington Post's um, motto, which is democracy dies in darkness. And without journalists, just think about what would go unsaid, the stories that would go uncovered. I think the role of journalists now, as Ali Velshi said, it's so important because without firefighters, you can't put out fires in houses. Without um, journalists, democracy really dies in darkness. And so that was one of the most important, I think, fascinating parts of the conversation was just how he sees his role as a journalist, um, And it's, I think, like you said, an inspiration to anyone who wants to become a journalist. Um, Is there any part of the conversation that you particularly enjoyed um, that you want to highlight for our audience?
1: Well, I I enjoyed hearing about his life because it's just incredibly interesting and about how he got involved in protests and things. But to your point about what he was saying about his line in journalism in terms of what he will allow and what he won't allow – He said, I will allow things that other people might not allow because I think the conversation is important, but I won't let people lie on my show Mm -hmm. and I won't have them repeat those lies. So I think that's important because we've lost that and you have social media that amplifies lies and people not having the critical thinking skills that he mentioned are so important so that they can't discern when they're reading things that have no basis in fact. I also was particularly struck by his um, analogy to 1930s Germany because I have long thought, and it's it's sort of not popular to say, but I've long thought that we are at a point in America where, like Hitler taking over, Trump and Trump cronies are taking over by doing a little twitch here and a little tweak there and a little bit of taking away our democracy. Um, the threat to the voting rights, the threat to turning over what votes are going to count to state legislatures. Those are things that frighten me tremendously. And I really do think we are at an existential threat to democracy now, and that everyone listening to the show needs to take action on that. And I think we can. So everybody listening, please Make sure you're paying attention to politics, that you research to make sure that what you're hearing is actually fact. Do what I do. When you're reading a story online and it says, for example, someone was indicted, click on the link for the indictment and read what the indictment says. Don't take someone else's word for what it is. Um, You know, when someone says something that is too good to be true or sounds a little fishy, research it because it probably isn't true we've all fallen on social media to believing something that isn't true. And well, I know I frequently have fans write to me saying, please check that, that isn't true. And I will check it out and they are right. So, you know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. And I'm trying to be very careful. I hope you will be too.
0: I agree. And I, and I just have one more point to say to that. There was so much in the conversation about critical thinking and, I, and going to your point about just being on social media, reading these news sources and and being skeptical about what you read. Don't believe in everything you read. I think that's important. There's so much cynicism right now, but I think we should somehow yes. turn that into skepticism and questioning um, what we read online. That's so important. And um, I, I think just one more point, one of the most frightening articles I've read um, recently is just um, the, the replacement of qualified and principled secretaries of state around the country with people who believe in big lies. There are more secretaries of state running for office. And I hope that as we head into 2022 and 2024, we can pay attention to those down ballot races to um, really yes. pay attention to who you're voting for, what they believe in. Um, and, and I think, like Ali said, it's important for us uh, as citizens to call people who you know lie liars. And um, uh, I think it's important. And I think I agree with you that it is sounds dramatic, but we are in an existential moment. Uh, And so it's up to all of us to really pay attention and and act as citizens.
1: So I hope you all enjoyed today's show and that you've enjoyed our past shows. And uh, Allie did mention Roger McNamee, who is another guest of ours. So please make sure you listen to that episode as well as uh, today's episode and come back. uh, You should sign up to follow us, um, listen to us. Uh, regularly through politicon.com. Thank you very much for being here today.